thank you for having us this morning. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, spending some time in the Word of God this morning. And if you will turn with me to First Peter, uh, we're looking this morning at verses three to five of of chapter one, <clears throat> and I've titled this message "Praising the God of Salvation." And we've talked about that a little bit this morning. Uh, Jean has talked about it already as we've sung of the Lord's goodness. Uh, and really, if we think about this concept of, of praising God, we would say that praising God is almost a, an immediate and direct response of being fully aware of who God is, of understanding the, the wonderful salvation that we ourselves have received. Uh, we stop, we consider the cross, we consider God's great love, his sacrifice of his son on the cross, his sovereignty, his character. Uh, his nature, his attributes. We think through all of these wonderful truths and we respond by praising God. That's just how it works. And that's a, a normal reaction when someone comes face to face with the person and work of God. In fact, if you were to go to the Psalms and you were to examine the Psalms, you will see that the psalmists themselves praise God, not in a vacuum or not just for no reason, but because they have come face to face with who God is. Not just theoretically, but practically. And it's often the case that the psalmist will praise God because God has been with them and met with them in the midst of their trials and their hardships. Not just in the highs and the mountaintop experiences, but all the time God has been with them. And so we praise God for who he is. Uh, it's natural and it's right that when we understand the person of God, the work of God, when we draw nearer to him, that the truths of the word of God, they, they evoke a response of praise from us. And I'm sure you've experienced that. That's just what happens. In fact, John Newton said it this way, When I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. When I see thee as thou art, I praise thee as I ought. What's he saying? When we see God with clarity, when we understand him in a fuller and deeper, richer way according to his word, then we will praise him and worship him in a fitting manner. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at. And we know and we will understand that in the one sense, it's very easy to praise God when wonderful things happen to us, when prayers are answered and things seem to go our way. The, the crooked road straightens. The the once um, disguised future is made clear. The darkness moves away and we see directly ahead and we go, wow, what a, what a wonderful God we have. And we can praise him when everything goes well and everything falls into line. But if we're honest, and if we're honest, we would say that it's difficult to praise God when life gets hard, when the future is very uncertain. It seems precarious and dangerous. Or following Christ and walking with Christ is difficult and costly. It's very hard to praise God when our life is like that. We consider Job and we see his response in Job 1. Uh, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we wonder how does a person do that? Well, friends, that's what separates us from the people of the world. We are those who can praise God when we're on the mountaintop but also when we are down in the valley. And I'm convinced that God is most glorified when we can praise him and worship him when everything is stripped away from us. Because that was the case with Job, wasn't it? The accuser came 
And God seemed to pick the fight there, by the way. But the accuser was there and he said, well, you know what? Job worships you and praises you and he is this righteous, God-fearing man because you've hedged him about. Look at what you've given to him. You've given him everything. Take it away and he'll curse you to your face. What's Satan saying there? Job only loves you when life's good. For what he gets out of you, take it away and he'll curse you to your face. Well, he was wrong. He was wrong and it wasn't the case. A genuine believer in God praises God in any and every circumstance. And here we have the book of 1 Peter. We know the context of Peter was written when there was fierce persecution and we'll look at that a little bit later. But fierce persecution for those in the body of Christ. And Peter came along and Peter wanted to build the saints up and to encourage them not just by getting alongside of them and putting his arm around them, but by presenting truth from the word of God about the person and work of God. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And I want to ask if you'll read with me, uh, perhaps we'll start in verse 1 and read all the way down through to verse 5. Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to go back some 2,000 years in history and to see how it was that you, by way of Peter, through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, saw fit to encourage those who were suffering. Father, what a wonderful reality that you can take your word and you can magnify it in the hearts and minds of your people and you can cause them to respond with praise and worship to yourself. Fear, anxiety, the the sorrows that come with suffering are all driven out by the wonderful truth of who you are. And Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray and ask that you, by your grace, would broaden and deepen and lengthen our understanding of your person, that we would be those who are moved in love and worship of you, that we would leave here this morning being all the more desirous to lay our lives down for you. Father, I pray that you would do this wonderful work this morning. We ask that you would magnify your son to us, that we would be overwhelmed by his person, by his character and by his work. Father, we want to pray and ask that as your word is preached, that you would move amongst us by your Holy Spirit, bringing much conviction, bringing much encouragement, and bringing much clarity around your word. Father, I pray that you would drive out any confusion or error that exists in our person. May you be gracious to us, Father. We want to give you thanks and ask for your blessing. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. Amen. 
Well, as I said a moment ago, Peter writes to the beloved saints there and uh, he speaks to them because he wants to encourage them. He is aware of their circumstances. Uh, we see here that he distinguishes them for the, from the rest of the people in the Roman world. He refers to them as elect exiles of the dispersion. And the context here is very severe. And we've been through some stuff lately, the last few years, but nothing compared to what these believers were facing. We know from history that Nero decided that he would burn Rome. And that's exactly what he did. Roman citizens, good upstanding citizens of Rome, lost everything because Nero decided to burn. Their homes, their businesses, uh, the culture and everything went up in smoke and flames as Nero burned Rome. Many citizens lost their lives as a result of this. Now, Nero had a solution to get himself off the hook. What did he do? Well, we all know it. He blamed Christians, easy targets who probably wouldn't defend themselves or stand up for themselves. He blamed Christians. Now, everyone in Rome was convinced that this fire was started by these believers. And they were probably already persecuted before the fire, but the fire and the situation caused things to get worse for believers. And from this point forward, you have intense persecution being faced by the church in the Roman Empire. And that is the context that Peter writes to these believers. And he wants them to stand strong, not just to survive, not just to get through this difficult time, but to remain faithful to the calling of God in their lives so that they wouldn't be um, deviated from the path that God had for them. Because that's what fear does. That's what suffering does. It can cause us to shy away from doing the will of God. You've all experienced this in the last few years. We all have. Doing what God calls us to do is often in the face of hardship. And he didn't want us to just get through those times, and he didn't want those believers here that Peter writes about, to just get through. He wanted them to be faithful, but also to be filled with joy. Filled with joy. And you think, well, how on earth can a person go through such difficulties and be joyful, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? How does that occur? Well, the scripture is wonderful because that's what we have here in the passage, Peter knows, like all of the apostles knew and all of the saints of old knew, that if I can turn the hearts of the children of God to the person of God, to the work of God, and primarily to the great salvation that they have, then their hearts will be filled with joy. And then they will be emboldened and strengthened and encouraged to press on. So God's great work of salvation is vital. And it's what they sung about it's what we sing about uh, we take the bread and the cup um, sometimes twice a month or whatever it may be but in those occasions we remember the lord jesus christ's life death and resurrection that wonderful work of salvation you see these truths are so wonderful they're so necessary they're so vital that if we were to forget them if we were to turn our eyes for a moment from God and his great work of salvation, then they instantly create a vacuum for which sorrow and suffering and heartache rush right in. And you would have experienced that. Take your eyes off God for a moment in the midst of hardship and you will instantly be filled with sorrow and grief and sadness. And you'll be overwhelmed by your circumstances. So we must remember the Lord and we must focus on the great salvation that we have. 
So we could say it this way, and this is our first point. All praise is due to God, for he has caused us to be born again. All praise is due to God, for he has caused us to be born again. You can see it there in verse 3, and just that first part. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God. Uh, that's the NIV translated as praise. It's where we get our English word eulogy. It means to, to speak well of. Here, Peter is essentially saying that God is to be praised because of the great salvation that he has brought about in Christ Jesus. And he tells us this here by saying this, that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's something important to note about those statements there. And that is this, that note that God and God alone is the one who causes us to be born again. You see that there in the text? God causes us to be born again. And we could say it this way, that just as you played no part in your own physiological, biological birth, so you and I play no part in our becoming born again. God is the one who does this. And in a sense, we consider that phrase, that statement, those words, to be born again. Uh, and in some senses, they're difficult to understand. In fact, John chapter 3, uh, we have the account of Nicodemus who was speaking to Jesus and he was confronted with this concept of being born again and he did not understand it. In the text, Jesus actually didn't say you are to be born again, but he said born from above. That's what the Greek says. You need to be born from above. Uh, the implication there is simply that physical birth cannot save a person. There needed to be another birth, which is a heavenly birth, a spiritual birth. That's what he's saying there in the text. And you might think, well, wow, yeah, well, how, how could Nicodemus ever know this? He was the teacher of Israel, right? The teacher, not a teacher. The Old Testament scriptures spoke about a day when the new birth would occur. A future point in time under the new covenant, which we are currently in, where God would put his spirit within the souls of his people. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26. The Lord says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the Old Testament looked forward to a time where all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, where they would be born again, we can say it that way. This phrase here in 1 Peter 1.3 1, and even 1.23, well, it's not born from above. It is literally born again. The word there means to to beget, to bring something forth. And it's almost always used in the context of giving birth. And we've got to ask the obvious question. How does the new birth occur? And why does it occur? How does it happen? How does a person become born again? Peter's telling us we can praise God because we have been born again. But how does this occur? Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's consider the natural man. The natural man who is born into this world, the Bible tells us that he is a fleshly man, a carnal man, a natural man. 
when Adam sinned back in the garden, all of humanity were charged with sin. And all of humanity were fallen with Adam in the garden. And we know that through procreation, uh, each descendant of Adam, each person born into this world, inherited a sin nature and began to sin. Or were charged as sinning when Adam sinned, but then as generation after generation came forth, all inherited his sin nature as well. And if you were to take all the scriptures and you were to examine what a person born into this world is like as he relates to God, it's quite staggering. It's quite confronting because most people out there think that, well, I'm not hostile to God. I'm not against him. I'm happy that he's there and I don't mind. Or That's perhaps how some people view this. But the Bible tells us something very different. The natural man who hasn't yet come to Christ for salvation, is in fact God's enemy. Romans 5.10 tells us that. He's God's enemy. Uh, the Ephesians 2.3 tells us that he's also a child of wrath. Romans 8.7 uh, and verse 8 as well tells us that in our natural human fallen state, we cannot submit to God's law. Our nature prevents us from submitting to God's law. And Ephesians 2.5 tells us that we're actually dead in sins. Ephesians 2.1, spiritually dead, not alive. And Romans 6, we are slaves of sin. And that's just a, the, the tip of the iceberg if you were to look at that way. And prior to any of us being saved, that was how we related to God. That was our natural disposition before him. But you might look on and think, well, that paints a very bad picture of humanity. As though humanity were this evil monster. Well, I look around and I don't see that. You might think that. The reality is God in his grace sees more than the externals that we see. The Bible tells us that he sees every thought and intention of the heart, every evil thought, every evil motive. He sees it all at once. There's another reason why we don't see the full-blown effects of sin in the unredeemed man, and that is because of God's common grace, right? God has provided Christians to be salt and light, to keep at bay the forces of darkness and sin. But he's also given us his word, the government, the authorities to stop sin and, and corruption from getting worse. So there are some, and, and the human conscience as well, there are some natural mechanisms that God has put into place, which we would call common grace, that prevent mankind from completely unraveling to a great degree regarding sin. So all of that to say, the natural man born into this world is born with a sin nature which basically prevents him from submitting to and obeying God's law. First uh, Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the natural man regards the things of the Spirit of God as being foolishness. And that's why people don't come to God, because they are foolish to him. So his nature, and this is the problem within mankind, his nature prevents him from loving, obeying God. So you consider a natural man out there in the world. A natural man can't just decide one day to pull up his socks and start following God. He can't. He can't. His nature prevents him. He cannot submit to Christ's demands upon his life. Why? Again, his nature prevents him. You see, we need to understand, friends, that the natural man, the person out there on the street that doesn't know God, he needs more than his sins forgiven. He needs his nature redeemed. He needs to be born again. That's the point of this. He needs to be recreated with new capacities and new capabilities and new affections and new desires. 
And that's the point of this passage. This is the new birth friend. He needs to be made alive and brought to life. And we would say it this way, that until a person is born again, there will always remain in the heart a deliberate indifference and hostility towards the word of God. And that's why in church life, we don't simply teach people how to uh, pray the prayers, read the scriptures, come to this group and come to that group and put on the externals of Christianity because if the internal man is unregenerate and unredeemed and if he's not born again, then nothing has changed. He's fooled himself into believing he's okay. This is so vitally important to understand. So what occurs at the new birth? Well, Maybe to say it this way, that just as a baby cries aloud when born, so too the spiritual birth causes the person to cry out in praise to God. That person who's first come to Christ for life is alive and they're excited and they're filled with joy because of the new life in Christ. Their eyes are open and they're devoted to God and they're filled with his love. God, by his grace, quickens the dead soul, enabling that faithless person to place their faith in Christ. You see, God initiates and man responds in faith. When do those two things occur? Well, within a microsecond of one another, and they appear to be one and the same act. I was listening to a message by uh, John Piper regarding this and the new birth and how it occurs. And he gave the example of this. He said, if I were to go into someone's room and they were sleeping, that would be kind of weird to start with. But if I was to go in there and go right up to them and say, wake up, they would instantly wake up. And the response and me shouting uh, would be almost joined in one and the same. And so it is with the new birth. God shouts, wake up, and there is an instantaneous response. Our response of faith and trust in Christ, well, it causes our great God to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sin. God is the one who initiates salvation and brings it to fruition. Titus 3, 5 to 6 tells us this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we know this very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And it's wonderful because we think of the new birth. There are two wonderful things that occur. There's a judicial pardoning that occurs, and there's an internal transformation that occurs so we would say it this way that at the moment of salvation we are cleansed and we are forgiven we're made holy and pure so that the holy spirit can come and dwell within us permanently we become that temple of god and this is a wonderful thing to consider consider the first element of this the judicial pardoning and this is the one that we often think about the most right all of the sins that i have ever committed when i come to christ i am forgiven the Bible tells us that it's not just the sins that you have committed from that point backwards, but it's also every sin that you will commit to the day of your death. All of those sins 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ paid for on the cross. And when you come to him for salvation and for life, you are forgiven. And you are judicially pardoned by the judge of all, the king of the universe, the Lord God Almighty, the highest authority in the universe. Everything is wiped away and you are cleansed and forgiven. If it were to stop there, well, we would probably, um, probably not be changed internally. But the scripture also tells us that we are internally transformed. 
we're made alive. Maybe let me back up a little bit and add something to the first point. We're judicially forgiven, but we're also credited with the righteousness of Christ. I better add that part as well. It's very important. The life that Jesus Christ lived, uh, some 33 years, living here on earth, obeying every single commandment that the Lord God had for him. That righteous life that he lived was credited to our account when we first believed. So the word of God demands that we obey perfectly. And there was only one person who's ever done that, and that is Jesus. So when you and I come to him for faith, yes, every sin is forgiven, paid for, no more, no more guilt, no more judgment, no more condemnation, Romans 8.1, but the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. And that's a wonderful thing. So this second element, the judicial pardoning, that occurs. That's the first part. The righteousness of Christ is received. But the second element is the internal transformation of the soul. And that is where we are made alive. We are made alive. We're brought to life. We go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. The Spirit of God dwells within us and makes us all together new creations in Christ. And that is why you can hear testimony after testimony of a person who used to live this way, who was contrary to the gospel, not following God. And all of a sudden, something has occurred in their life and they are a different person with new affections, new desires. And what they once loved, they now hate. And once, what they once hated and regarded as being foolishness, they now love and regard as being wisdom. That's evidence and that's testimony for countless believers. So we could say it this way, that we have this new birth in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are now alive to God. We are now alive to God. We have a new nature. We're spiritually alive. We are also adopted into the family of God. Our God is our Father. He's not just the God of heaven. He is our Father. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of the family of God. Uh, we now love God's Word, whereas we used to be prevented from submitting to it and loving it. We regarded it as foolishness because of our old nature, but now we have a new nature. We now love God's law. We love it and we delight in it. His word is a delight to our souls and we are freed from the slavery of sin. So friends, this is something to rejoice about, is it not? And I think we don't stop long enough to consider these truths. I think we run too fast and we don't stop to consider the great work of salvation through the new birth that we have received. This is why we are to praise our great God. But there's a second reason and you can see it here in the second part of verse 3b. He has given us a living hope. See it there in the text. It says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, not a fabricated hope, not a hope that you just have because you don't have anything else kind of thing. A living hope. This is real. This is real. It's a living hope. You see, without the new birth, our present life and our future were absolutely doomed to destruction. But through the new birth, we are given hope. And the wonderful thing about hope is this, that hope always looks forward. It looks forward to a future blessed reality based upon the promises of God. You see, it's not a, a whimsical uncertainty based upon luck or chance. And a lot of people think that regarding Christianity. You hope in God because you're just weak, pathetic people who have nothing else. And your hope is based upon nothing. Our hope is based upon facts. Truth, historically proven facts and truths. 
That is the hope that we have. Peter tells us here that it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? That is where our hope comes from. The fact that our Lord and Saviour was crucified on the cross and was raised on the third day proved that everything that was said about him and everything that he himself said was absolutely true. He is our hope. And I believe that the effects of the resurrection have a present and a future uh, blessing that we receive now. Uh, Scripture tells us that we've been made alive together with Christ. That's a present reality. And just as Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead, so too we have been raised up together with him in newness of life. New creations in Christ, new people. Listen to Ephesians 2, 6. Well, starting verse 4, actually. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The tense of the verbs here tells us that these two realities, they occur at the moment of salvation. This is what God has done for you. When you believed in Christ and were saved, you were raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. That means the old life is gone and you go from being a citizen of this world to a citizen of heaven. A wonderful truth to consider. But the future, well, hope is for the present. But hope is also for the future. And this living hope looks forward to all that really is explained in verses 4 here. But it is a real and tangible living hope, again, because it is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection, we would say, well, it confirms, it validates, and it brings the assurance that he himself is going to return. And he will take us to be with him. He will raise our mortal bodies to be with him and like him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, you can write that down if you like, but uh, that is a wonderful verse which tells us this truth, that we look to the things that are um, uh, unseen rather than the things that are seen. John eleven twenty five, Jesus makes this point, and I believe he was speaking to Martha. Uh, this is the death and resurrection of Lazarus section of Scripture. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet, he, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I love that passage because he says there that death is inevitable. Everyone is going to die. Though he die, yet he shall live. Not everyone can claim that promise. Not everyone can claim that promise. You can claim part of it. You're all going to die. Everyone's going to die. But to live after death is the right and blessing of a person who has been made alive by Christ. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, Paul tells us there that we are citizens of heaven. The moment you are saved, you go from being an earthly citizen to a heavenly citizen where your name is recorded in heaven's roll book. Friends, this truth and these truths that we've just considered that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, when we stop and consider them, they should fill our souls with joy, should they not? And they should cause us to praise God. Think of those believers 
that Peter was speaking to in the context of the suffering that they were going through. Think of how this would have enlivened their souls and dragged their eyes up out of their suffering to see a great God and Savior. This would have filled their heart with joy. So we could say it this way, that our living hope in Christ illuminates our souls even in life's darkest moments. That's what our Lord now God does. And that is why scripture and truth is so vitally important. So we could say that all praise is due for God has caused us to be born again. He has given us a living hope, but all praise is due to God for he has, um, he gifts us with a fortified heavenly inheritance. And this is very important. Verse four, he has gifted us with a fortified heavenly inheritance, not just an inheritance and not just a heavenly one. It's fortified. There's security here. Look at verse three. Come back to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And the first prepositional phrase we saw this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The second prepositional phrase is this, and we could say it this way. He has caused us to be born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, Peter wants believers to know and to realize that the child of God isn't just saved and then given eternal life and then becomes a citizen of heaven. We are not like angels and we will not become like angels who are also citizens of heaven, who are, I guess, in a, in a state of being uh, alive to God as opposed to fallen angels who are dead and going to be judged. Right? So we are not going to be like angels. God has something more in mind for us. He speaks here of an inheritance. Not just any inheritance, but a most wonderful and precious inheritance. What is that inheritance? Well, we know and understand that how an inheritance works. It's usually a parent or a relative who uh, passes on all of their earthly possessions and rights and blessings to the preceding generations for their good when they are to leave this earth. In Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And here's the conclusion that he comes to. And if a son, then an heir through God. I mean, friends, we were enemies. We were dead in sins. And he didn't just make us alive, but he gave us an inheritance because we are sons of God. Can you understand the gravity of that? And, and I must admit, very few people preach on this and very few believers and pastors talk about what is to come and what will be ours when Christ sits on his glorious throne. It, it is hard to understand and that's probably why no one speaks about it. But Scripture has a lot to say regarding this. It would do us well to research this and to think through it so that we might be encouraged by what is to come. 
this concept of an inheritance. Um, believe it or not, Scripture speaks of it in two different ways. Um, we know and we understand that we receive an inheritance. But the second way is not spoken of often. We are also an inheritance given by God the Father to the Son. So we receive an inheritance, but we also become an inheritance, a gift of love from the Father to the Son. And that's what it means by being the bride of Christ. And that's hard to consider, isn't it, in your minds? This perfect bride who has been washed, cleansed, forgiven, made righteous, is gifted from the Father to the Son. What a wonderful truth to consider. As we consider perhaps these this inheritance, the nature of it, we know that we will inherit eternal life. We also know that we will be gathered together with every single saint who has ever been born and we will be the family of God in the presence of God and the presence of Christ and we will live forever in that state. We know we understand that we will be given a resurrected body that will be suitable for all eternity, a body of power and strength that will not fade away or diminish. That is part of the inheritance. Uh, we also know and understand that the life that we have lived here on earth, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and sits on his throne, we will be given rewards and gifts, which we will take with us into that kingdom, but also into all eternity. Matthew 19, 27. I wonder if you'll turn there with me. Sorry, I do jump through the verses very fast. Uh, Matthew 19, 27. Um, here Peter is making, uh, I guess, a, an assessment of life. And he's looking at the fact that he and the other apostles have left much in order to follow Christ. And in verse 27, Peter replies and says this, See, we have left everything and followed you. Then what then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so hermeneutically, most of you, all of you, you will understand that that is not speaking about any of us. It's speaking about the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples who will sit on the 12 thrones. But verse 29 is absolutely about us. And it's about every believer, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I'm sure Peter heard those words and just went, oh, wow, what a joy. In the context of suffering, when everything is being taken off you and persecution has entered into your life, then the knowledge and the understanding that God has something far better for me in the life to come brings peace to the soul. That's the point of truth and that's the point here. Jesus Christ is our inheritance and we are his inheritance and we will one day rule and reign together with him, which is a truth to consider. Maybe a question to ask is this, and as we think through this and, and maybe as you consider the people whom Peter is speaking to in Rome and uh, the Roman Empire rather, uh, they were seeing their possessions taken off them, losing houses, lands, uh, goods, clothing, being thrown into prison, having loved ones being put to get death and imprisoned and so on. Perhaps everything that was passed down from generation to generation is just gone in a moment. And perhaps he's hearing these words from Peter and thinking, well, how secure is that inheritance that you speak about? Right? That may be a natural response. 
Peter wants him to understand that that inheritance is absolutely secure. Let's take a look at this. I want to start and I'll just read from Ephesians 1.13 for a moment. Here, Paul speaks of the inheritance and the security of it. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And this word guarantee, uh, literally it means down payment or pledge. It was used in antiquity of a, a ring, a, a ring that sealed and secured where you put your mark and that was your seal. It was also used of the idea of an engagement ring that you give to that young girl who you love and you want to seal the deal so you give her a ring and this is the pledge that's unbreakable in a sense. We're told here by Paul that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us through the new birth is a sure sign and an, un, an immovable reality that we are sealed and we will one day receive that inheritance. This is the guarantee that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. These are present realities for all of us at the moment you are saved. A wonderful truth to consider. Verse 4, while Peter goes on and he obviously anticipates the, uh, perhaps the questions that may have been going around the believers' minds regarding the certainty of the reward and the inheritance. And in verse 4, he tells us some very wonderful truths regarding this inheritance. He wants them to know that it is safe, it is secure. So he says this, the inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it is kept in heaven for you. And you know what? Earthly inheritances, they come, they go, they get squandered. Maybe they're built upon, but... What, what I seem to see happen in life is this, and I might be wrong, but it seems as though someone has all of this stuff and then gets to 70 or 80 or whatever it may be and then dies and just gives it to someone else. And then that just happens over and over again and no one really owns everything or keeps everything for eternity, right? We just have it for a time and we pass it on. But we seem to live like it's never going to leave us and we build wealth and we just pass it on. Naked we come, naked we leave. And we can be found to be storing up treasures on earth rather than in heaven. This inheritance here is very different from anything that we know. We're told here that it is kept in heaven. Uh, that word kept, it means this. It means to cause or to keep a state uh, continuing to, to be. To cause a state to continue on so that it will not change, it will not alter. Uh, it's often used to refer to someone who is watching as a guard, uh, keeping someone's full attention on an object. The Bible's telling us here that that inheritance is guarded in heaven. It's watched. It is kept. And this, this, this verb here, it's actually a divine passive. It's called a divine passive. And that means this, that God himself does the keeping. God is the one watching it and guarding it. His eyes are fixed. Now, what does that tell you? Well, obviously, it's not going to be stolen. No one can do anything to it because the God of all gods, who is unlimited in all of his attributes, is the one keeping your inheritance. And again, the peace and joy that this would have brought to the heart of those listening to Peter would have been amazing. 
the fact that this inheritance is in heaven, well, that obviously means that it is away from all sources of corruption. Uh, It resides with God who dwells in unapproachable light, who dwells in heaven where there is no corruption. And friends, stop and consider this. You may go without in this life and your lot in life may be suffering and you may have had a situation where you have lost everything or in the future you potentially will lose everything if the government has their way. Who knows? Does it matter? It doesn't matter because you have something far better. And friends, let's just say it this way. Why are we here on earth? Is it to build up earthly inheritances? No, it's not. We're not here for that reason. We are here to do the will of God. We are here to carry out his work as soldiers of Christ. We're not here for this and for that and to digging our roots deep into this world and amassing wealth and and resources and, and stuff. We're here for God. That is why we have been saved. All of that, enjoying our best life, is not for the now. It's for the later when we will be with our Lord. We are here to serve him. We're on a mission. We're in a battle, the scriptures say. Friends, if you think about the realities of our salvation, you think about the gravity of the inheritance, should we not be the most joyful of people, right? Shouldn't we be the most joyful of people, even in the midst of suffering? And shouldn't it be said of us that though these people suffer, though they are abused and mistreated and and go without, they are still joyful? That's a powerful testimony. And that is really something that only believers know and understand. Friends, we have a great work to do here on earth. And it's, it's to be done in light of what is to come. You lose sight of what is to come and what is yours in Christ, then you will naturally live life for the here and now. I just spoke at a family camp in Perth a couple of weekends ago and the topic of the camp was uh, essentially what's next for the people of God. And in that, we were really bringing to bear the next, I guess, um, programs in God's timeline, looking at the rapture, the resurrection, the millennial kingdom, uh, the eternal state, and so on. And my point out of that whole conference is that if we are not aware of what is to come and the blessings of God that are to come, then we will naturally make much of this life and we will draw back from doing the will of God. This is something very important that we really need to get our head around and understand. And I would say it this way, that if you as a child of God don't have at the centre of your thoughts and intentions fulfilling the will of God for your life, then this world has likely blinded your eyes, even if it is just for a moment. We shouldn't be living like that, right? We should not be living that way. I love the example of the apostles and particularly Paul. Um, In 2 Corinthians 5.14, and if you'll turn there with me, I want to show you this. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the context here is that Paul is explaining away why it is that he and the other apostles are just so enamored with the Lord, so enraptured with the Lord. And you might look on and you might be thinking, well, that was just them. You know, they have something special that none of us have. And God kind of maybe just zapped them and gave them something that uh, other believers just don't have. We're all like this, but they're like, woo, they're excited. Paul tells us what was going on in his soul. Look at verse 14. He says this, the love of Christ controls us. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. 
And I, and I think we read that and we think that it means this, that I am just so filled with love and I'm just so happy and so thankful that that causes me to do what I do and be who I am before God. That's not what this means. The love of Christ there is a reference to the love of Christ demonstrated at Calvary and the love of Christ demonstrated in your everyday life by ministering to you, caring for you, coming alongside of you and strengthening you. Paul is looking at the example of Christ's love and that example that he sees dramatically changes his soul. How do I know that? Well, he says it. Look at this. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Christ died and we died with him. The old life is gone. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I love the conclusion that he comes to. I love the conclusion. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So when you look at Paul, you see a man who was overwhelmed by the love of Christ on the cross, who has come to grips with the fact that Jesus Christ died and I died with him. And now I'm a new creation in Christ. I want to give you my all, Lord. Here I am. Take me. Do, what, do with me what you will. That was his conviction. And that was why he seemed to have this reckless, self-abandoning faith where he ran into danger and kept preaching the gospel no matter what. Let's come to our final point. All praise is due to God, for he stands guard over our earthly lives. <clears throat> Verse 5, he says, You uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of us, God's children here on earth, we are essentially functioning as God's ambassadors. The Bible tells us that we are actually guarded. We even now here on earth, for the duration of our life on earth, we are being guarded. And that word there is actually a, a military term. It's a military term in the English as well. Um, and really it refers to the work and the action of a sentinel, someone who stands watch and guards. Uh, we would say that it's also a present passive participle. And the present has the idea that right now, as we speak, as you're reading this, these realities apply. That's what this means. The passive means that it's not us who are doing the action. It's again, God is the one who is guarding. God is the one who's the sentinel. God is the one who is watching over us right now. And the participle, well, that explains the ongoing continuous action of the verb. God is not just guarding us or hasn't just guarded us. He continues to guard us for all time as we live our life out here on the earth. We're told that we are being continually guarded through faith. Friends, faith is what we have. It's what we walk in. Uh, faith is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this. And so really we come full circle and we say, well, what does all of this mean? Again, understand the great salvation that is ours. We have been born again. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been washed and forgiven of all of our sin. We've been given the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit permanently. Um, our salvation is safe, secure, and we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it is this one 
It is the Lord God who has determined to ensure that we will continue on in our faith for the duration of our whole lives. He is there to goad us, to guard us, to hedge us in, to prod us, to push us forward. Um, John 17, 12, regarding the scriptures, uh, he, he speaks of his disciples. He says in verse 12, For I was, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this idea of you being guarded, you being preserved, you being protected, we saw it in the Gospels with Jesus and his disciples. And friends, that is the promise for us today. We are guarded right now. Nothing will ever get you off that track. You've been washed, forgiven, declared righteous, and the Lord God walks with us and strengthens us and helps us to run the race of faith, doing our part in obeying the Lord. Louis Burkhoff said this, Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. And so there is a sense in which we're absolutely saved, absolutely secure. It cannot be undone. But us running the race faithfully, doing the will of God, we have our great God watching over us, guarding us, giving us strength to press on. John Piper similarly says this, The assurance of the believer is not that God will save him even if he stops believing, but that God will keep him believing. God will sustain you in faith. He will make you hope firm and stable, your hope firm and stable to the end. He will cause you to persevere. What a blessing. Because we come face to face with the frailty of our humanity. And if we were to believe that, well, it's up to me and me alone to uh, find my way all the way to the end, then we're in trouble. The Bible's telling us that, you know what? The Lord is beside you. The Lord is the strength of your soul. Hebrews 12, well, you know what? That tells us that even when we are wayward and when we ourselves might rebel on occasion, the Lord will discipline us. He will correct us as a father does a son and bring us back into line. I've experienced that firsthand numerous times in the past. That is what the Lord does. He, by his sovereign power, preserves, protects, and does all that is necessary to ensure that you, the child of God, his possession remain faithful for all of your days. And that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? That brings joy to the soul. But you might ask the question, well, what about my friend? Or what about that person who they were in the church, uh, they used to sing up the front or play the guitar, or they were in Bible studies and they walked away? How do we understand that? What do we do there? Well, my answer to that is this. Well, as long as that person is alive, there always is hope that they will in a day repent and turn. God knows the hearts of all men, right? We do not know where a person's at. We do know from Hebrews 12 that if a person is a child of God, they will be disciplined. Maybe not in six months, maybe like David, a year, but maybe two years. Who knows? As long as they're alive, there is still hope that in a coming day they will repent and believe and turn back to the Lord. Understanding this idea of the fact that it's the Lord who preserves us and helps us to go forward by faith. You might think, well, what about my own choice to walk by faith? 
Well, our own choices are very real, uh, greatly required. They're commanded in Scripture and we must exercise them. Um, if we neglect the, our role or our part in the sanctification process, we will suffer spiritually. We will be harmed spiritually. We will be empty, joyless, um, defeated and useless for the kingdom of God. We have a great responsibility to not neglect the great salvation that we have. Friends, I pray that this will be an encouragement to you. Uh, I pray that it's lifted your soul. And, and, and again, I find it so helpful to stop, to think through who I once was. And sometimes that's painful. Who I once was to who I am now. And again, it's all by the grace of God, is it not? It's all by his grace. Jesus said this in John 3, 3. Speaking to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's a powerful statement. If you've ever done street ministry or you've spoken to someone at work who doesn't know the Lord, um, people are unaware of this verse. People don't know what it is to be born again or the fact that it's a condition regarding salvation. Many people do not understand it. And yet Jesus says that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Friends, you can't be born again by your own effort or by your own work. You must cry out to the Lord and pray for mercy, pray for grace. The scriptures and the gospel appeal is for all people to come to Christ and live. The offer of salvation is a free gift. And you might be tempted to think, well, it seems cheap. It seems like a, a gift really isn't worth value if I haven't paid for it. And some people think that way. But friends, let me say this, that it may have cost us nothing, but it cost the Father everything. His Son bore the penalty on the cross and suffered at the hands of evil men. He died a cruel and painful death. It cost Him everything, but it costs us nothing. So I pray that you would not push away the hand of salvation as the Lord offers it through the gospel, but rather that you will soften your heart and come and live. Be born again, come to life and live for all eternity as you receive Christ as Savior. Father, we want to thank you for this time. Lord, we want to thank you for the wonderful truths in your word. And Lord, the fact that we can stop and we can bless your name, that we can praise you, uh, Lord, we confess that we forget the realities of our salvation. We forget the gravity and the magnitude of the great work that your son has accomplished on the cross. But Lord God, we also are prone to forget what is ours in Christ Jesus, your great kindness, your great love, and that in a coming day we will be with you for all eternity. Father, I pray that you would continue to weave this into our souls, that we would be men, women, and children of the word people who are overwhelmed by the effects of the gospel and the realities of this great salvation that you have accomplished. And Father, for any here this morning who do not know you as Lord and Saviour, for any who are resisting, I pray that they may come to you, the fount of living waters, and that they will drink and live forever, that they will take the bread of life and never hunger ever again, that they would come to the light and walk out of darkness and truly live. Father, I pray that such ones would indeed taste and see that you are good. We give thanks to you for this time. We want to thank you for one another. And Father, I ask that you would cause your word to bear fruit this morning. Sink it down deep into our souls. Drive the enemy away and bring life where there is none. Lord, we give thanks to you for this morning and for this time. In Jesus' precious name.
Amen.